Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 268. Today is Sunday the 11th of March 2018. And this interview is with Jeremy Waite, who's the evangelist and global leader of the CMO programs at IBM. In this podcast with Jeremy, we zoom in on artificial intelligence. We look at the state of the business of AI, the key trends in artificial intelligence, how companies can best use AI to fit their strategy, the use of AI in storytelling, and much more. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, Jeremy, great to have you back on the podcast. You are a man with many hats and a wonderful friend. Uh, So tell us in your own words who you are, Jeremy Waite, and uh, what's your mindset these days? It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back. Um, I'm an evangelist at IBM. I'm really the preacher. So I travel around talking about IBM Watson and AI. I spend most of my time with marketers, with uh, senior marketers and CMOs, really just talking about the changing landscape, where the world is going, why it's going in that direction, and what are the things that they can do using technology to try and meet those challenges. That sounds like quite the uh, plateful, Jeremy. Uh, How about your mindset? Why would you describe where you are in your mind, Jeremy? My mindset, let me me cite two of my favorite people. Um, Because I'm a preacher, I don't have any agenda. I'm not in sales, and I go out and and tell stories. Um, Forgive me for the name drop, but one of my favorite people in the world, I interviewed Tom Ford last year, and he said this really curious thing. He said these 10 words, if it's not fun, I don't want to do it. And my mindset ever since has always been that. I've just never really quantified it in as articulately as, as Tom did. And that's the thing. If it's not fun, I really don't want to do it because I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in business. We should be going out and having fun. But the way that I do that without sounding all kind of cheesy and trite, there's another quote from one of my other favorite people, Zig Ziglar. You know the old sales trainer? Oh, yeah. In the 60s and 70s, beautiful guy. And he said, you can have everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. So my mindset is have fun and try and help other people get what they want. Love it. It's amazing, Jeremy, how once one verbalizes the thought, it becomes anchoring and structuring in your own life. I know. And you know what? The thing was, I never thought like that originally i came into the industry and i tried a million things i tried to do the entrepreneurial thing i tried to have an agency i went through bankruptcy up and down peaks and troughs all over the place but the thing that was always consistent was wanting to change the industry wanting to come in make a difference you want to make the world a better place all that kind of stuff and um and that was the thing that always drove me and i've always been inspired by all the usual cliches of you know the mandalas and the bonos and the jobs and all that kind of stuff and one of the favorite quotes that i heard when i first heard it was from alexandra mcqueen lee mcqueen um who's sadly not with us anymore and he said if it doesn't change the industry i don't want to do it and he liked the idea of these fashion shows that people might vomit coming out because he challenged the consensus to such an extreme And I kind of thought naively in the marketing world, how can I do that? How could he be the Alexandra McQueen of? And I've always struggled with that because I think for a lot of what we do, it's not about that at all. Sometimes it's about helping people get what they want, more fun at work. So when Tom Ford said, if it's not fun, I don't want to do it, I had this moment of crisis of, oh my gosh, we need to be one or the other. 
Am I Tom Ford or am I Lee McQueen? Am I changing the industry or am I having fun? And actually, as I matured and I'm now 45, um, and my thoughts have softened a little bit, I thought, you know what? It's cool to be both. And at different points in my career and at different conversations and different projects, some of them are fun. Some of them are trying to change the world. But there's this happy synergy. There's this little marriage now between the two that I'm really comfortable with. It's taken a while, though. Well, it is the journey, Jeremy. In what you say, it makes me think that we have these two challenges. The first is helping marketers to market better. Mm -hmm. And in this new world, the new options, the choices we have, marketers are faced with a deluge, they're faced with pressure of performance. And then there's a second thought, which is how can they actually have fun and be better people? And, and ultimately, with all the pressure, what I see is a lot of drawn faces, fatigue, sense of overwhelmed, not being able to keep up with the pace at home, much less at work. Do you see your role as much bridging those two zones as well? Or is it, are you more focused in your role as, you know, quote unquote, preacher in, in, uh, at, at IBM? I think... If you were to use that analogy, though, and you were to, you were to play out the preaching um, metaphor, you're really going to be talking about how you're building trusted relationships as well. You're this trusted advisor that's there to have an almost pastoral care mm-hmm. without being, let's take the religion out of it, but that idea of you building a relationship with someone that's trying to help and advise them to go forward. So what's the evidence for where we're at at the moment? So you make a really good point about being overwhelmed. PwC did this great piece of research. They went out to about 4,500 executives, and basically they concluded that four out of five executives are currently overwhelmed and underprepared for the challenges their business is going to face over the next five years. So what we find is that a lot of the execs we speak to, people, they're terrified. People are scared. They don't know what to measure. They're completely overwhelmed. You've seen that landscape graphic a thousand times from Scott Brinker with the 5,100 logos on it now. People don't know what to do. And what's happened is their jobs have migrated. They've evolved into this place where it sucked the fun out of what they do. And it stopped marketers specifically doing the one thing that they were supposed to do all along, which was build relationships through better storytelling. And that notion of no matter what your job title is and what little part of marketing that you work in, we're all storytellers. We've just got to tell these stories as fast and as compellingly as possible. We've got to remember the audience is the most important part of those stories. But as we get overwhelmed with tech and software and dark social and big data and AR and VR and what strategy should I invest in next, fake data, um, that sucks the life out of the creative process and stops marketers telling better stories. And it's that's the most interesting transition for me over the last few years, that marketing's become this martech you know it's all this big technology play and it's kind of forgotten where its roots came from Mm. i I don't know i wonder uh for my existence and the marketing folks that i used to hang out with specifically at l'oreal the idea of storytelling was really never on our radar and this is before martech Mm -hmm. that's to say i was you know started in the 90s at l'oreal and then as i moved through marketing for me was all about let's say the four p's and and within the four p's we we were far from storytelling we might get a a a spokesperson but they're not telling stories they're just presenting my product through the face of some famous person so i wonder to what extent do you find in the audiences you're going with 
there is that a latent desire to go back to that because it it seems to have been washed out not just because of martech but because of the fierce competition at the front to get the numbers in by the end of the week is that let me let me push back on that is, is that is that true that you think you didn't tell stories that you didn't have that as much i think to the big emotional triggers what drives behavior um used to call them passion pillars at facebook music tv fashion film sport anything around those topics in our politics for short is where you get so much emotion that's what drives you know the majority of, of behavior and that's where all these stories come from but the stuff that you did you lived in the middle of beauty and fashion and cosmetics and this idea of people wanting to better themselves and present you know that's all storytelling, whether it's visual storytelling, whether it's through an image. It doesn't have to be through the written word or a narrative. Surely you were fantastic storytellers to do and have the success that you did. Well, what I can say is that I love the stories of Redken. But for the most part, what I saw more of was, hi, this is Jane. She has a headache. She takes aspirin. This is Jane. Two hours later, she has no more headache. You should buy aspirin too. But you're not selling aspirin. That's true, but I, what I'm saying, products, of course. And you're selling beauty. Right. Well, the, the point is, though, that, that at some level, the, the story is so reduced to go to the store and buy the product. The, the idea of romancing and bringing you know, emotion into the story. <laughs> uh, anyway, certainly from, from what I, I look at, even when you buy a car, it's sort of... I mean, yes, there's the car, and they're all the same, much of the same here, driving fast and the wheels are good. And at the end, you know, go to the distributor and, and buy your car for 4500 We can get a 20% off. Let me, um, you just reminded me of us. There's a small story as part of the, the Tom Ford conversation that we had. And he said, um, he was challenged by the editor of Vanity Fair about storytelling. Now, as we all know, his brand has done fantastic things and he's done from Gucci. And they're taking the big full-page press ads. Some would argue that they're not fantastic storytellers because everything may be about the press and the prestige and just that strong brand identity of being super, super aspirational with a huge price tag. And that becomes the story of, you know, nobody needs a $5,000 suit. You don't need to spend $3,000 on a pair of heels. But the editor of Vanity Fair pushed back on him. And they were, she was saying, like, what's your storytelling? She said, what do women really want, Tom? And I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to see what he's going to say because he's about to reveal, you know, the, inner, he's, the secrets of what's driven brand, the brand success. These are the, he says, women just want to be taller, slimmer and younger. And she said, okay, yeah, that's really funny, Tom. What, what, what do you really mean by that? You know, what, what do women actually really want? She's giving him a get out of jail free, right? right? Um, from that statement. No, they want to be taller, slimmer and younger. And obviously he's referring to the heels and the clothes and the beauty products and, um, makeups and things and um and she said no tom like she's de digging for a deeper purpose like what's your story about why your brand exists and he just went darling is that not enough and that was it and the level of now i love him to bits and what he's done but the level of arrogance that he almost had and he was just okay with that our stories just exist as a beautiful image for women to aspire to be taller, slimmer, or younger. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that was his way of telling a story, which is not, it sounds like, a million miles away from what you were doing. Well, and, well to, be, to be fair, what I believe is that that's the indictment of fashion. 
And that's why you have so many brands that are crashing and burning and, and a lot of retailers who, who have no bigger purpose than just to sell a thing that lies about telling you about being slimmer, taller and uh, you know, younger. Um, you make a valid point. <laughs> right, hey, listen, let's jump into AI because that's um, one, of the, one of the topics I really want to talk about with you, with artificial intelligence. Sure. Um, where, where are we today in AI? I mean, really, the, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk. It's been around for a long time. Uh, are, are companies really actually getting into AI? I mean, you've, of course, you, only see, you, you read about the ones which have done stuff. I get the feeling that there must be a lot of talk about happening, but is it really happening? And how would you describe uh, the trends in AI these days? Let me, um, that's a really good question. Um, let me give you the evidence rather than my opinions to start with, just of exactly where we are. So when you look at things like this, first of all, we're trying to look at where the future's going, which is a nightmare because none of us have got a clue. That's your daily job. <laughs> But I'm not, you know, you get all these futurists, you've seen them yourself, you go to the conferences, you're off to South by, there's going to be a million future. No one's got a clue, right? We know the future's going to be different. Other than that, we haven't got a Scooby what's going to happen next. The best guess that we can have, and certainly based upon the evidence of what's gone before, you look to certain analysts to see, you know, our best guess about what's going to happen next. And it's based upon, obviously, you know, a huge amount of research with strong methodology trying to understand the nuances of what's changed over the last few years. Gartner and Forrester I put up at the top, IDC for sure. Gartner has a hype cycle, which consistently has been very accurate because what it does is it's not just the hype cycle that you would see in a, a fast company or a wired or a conference of, oh my gosh, look at this new thing about here's how AR and VR is going to change everything when it turned out to not. Mm -hmm. And we had the same thing with Bluetooth and beacons and all sorts of other stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, because what Gartner does is they say there's a cycle. It's not just this is the trend this year and then we'll do the trends for 2019 and 2020. They have this cycle that shows the peaks and the troughs of how a trend in any place is going to play out. So the one worth having a look at, it's called the Digital Advertising and Marketing Hype Cycle. And what you'll see when you see that graphic is you'll see this arc, which is called the, it's the law of diffusion of innovation. Simon Sinek talks about it a lot. And you can split it into chunks. And you have basically the very early adopters then you have your early majority, your late majority, you have your mass market. And what it talks about is where on this cycle does a trend appear and at what likelihood is it going to mature over what period of time? So to answer your question about AI, according to the most recent hype cycle, 3% of the marketing industry are adopting AI or thinking about it strategically. And that trend is going to mature over the next five years-ish. Now, by mature, what Gartner means is 40% of an industry. So when 40% of the industry adopts a trend, it seems to become mainstream. It's not hyped anymore. They claim that AI in marketing is 3%. Now, I thought that was interesting. I didn't think it was strictly true, and I didn't think it told the full picture. You thought it was understating. I thought va vastly, yeah. Um, so I went out and commissioned my own independent piece of research. Nobody knew that it came from IBM. Um, but we'll send a link to the research in the notes so that everyone can get it. And I went out and surveyed 1,200 mid- to senior-level marketers in Western Europe and the UK and asked them, to what point are you investing in AI? Is it hyped? Is it real? Are you taking it seriously because you've got fundamentally some stuff to fix? I found out that it was a lot more dramatic. It was actually 28% of the industry mm -hmm. is looking at putting it into that strategy over the next 18 months. Now, whichever way you look at it, 
whether it's 18 months or whether it's five years, mm-hmm. it's very true that we're in this incredible moment right now where there is almost a vacuum of no one quite knows what to do. And it's not fully played out yet. We don't know the problems. We've not looked at bias of training in AI. Maybe we could talk about that. Um, but what's sure about the competitive edge of the people that are looking at it is that that's happening right now. Mm. It's going to play out over 18 months to five years or whatever. Now, the challenge is to what point do you get seduced by something as beautiful and as shiny as a gorgeous AI like mm. IBM's Watson? Because if I'm sat there as Mr. CMO, VP of marketing, head of director, whatever, and my customer service is shit, I want to fix that first. Mm-hmm. You know, 88% of brands don't share their own data between their own sales, marketing, customer service teams. Kevin Kelly, the chief maverick, senior chief maverick at Wired, he said there's no business case for innovation. You should perfect what you know. And what he was saying was focus on the fundamentals first of fixing the building blocks of your business and then start looking at innovation and disruption. And that's my best word of advice, really. It's going away like a steam train and everyone's getting seduced and hyped by it. But you've got to focus on the fundamentals first. Well, I mean, really, I couldn't agree with you more. At the end of the day, it's like the notion between make your current customers happy and going after new ones. We always know we have to have new ones. We always want to know we have innovation. But if you know how to do the basics, execution is strategic. And execution is delivering today. Mm. I want to pick up one point, which is AI as a, a shiny object. I mean... It, it, I mean, clearly, I would say for you, it's not a shiny object. It is an obligation. Yeah. Um, this is true. This is the foundations of IBM. You know, we're the 10th biggest brand in the world. We've got this ridiculous history. I like to look at us as if we're this 107-year-old startup. And where the company's come to over those 107 years is the point where now we've bet the farm on cloud computing and cognitive. So for us, it's absolutely not a shiny object. Um, and the context for that, so we started building, the, 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 the building blocks of the AI came from the 90s. You maybe, Kasparov, you remember when? Sure. So Deep Blue and the computer game in 97, the 20th anniversary of that. And Deep Blue became this incredibly smart computer. It was very very expensive alarm clock, as Gary Kasparov likes to call it, the $10 million alarm clock. But what happened was we then played that out and evolved that into what then became known as Watson. So from 2008, there was a team led by Dave Ferrucci, and they wanted to build out this AI for fun. Now, I love that, and that's a key point. Um, Stephen B. Johnson, fantastic author, a great thinker, he said, if you want to look to where the future's going, look where people are having the most fun. Now, I love that we built what it currently is the world's most powerful enterprise AI. We built for fun. We built it for a laugh in 2007, 2008 to win a game show. You know, 20 years ago, we built it to win a chess game. Now, that's fantastic. And in 2011, Jeopardy happened and it was all wonderful. And all the stories we know what happened with that. But what was the first thing that we did when we found out that it worked? We put it straight into Memorial Sloan Kettering to try and figure out how can this solve some of the biggest challenges around oncology and helping doctors make diagnoses on rare diseases. So for us, it's very, very serious, and we don't see it as being shiny at all. Where I would throw this out as being shiny, and today is a beautiful example, we sat in London, not a million miles away from Olympia, where there's Marketing Week Live, there's a big conference over the road. There's going to be a bunch of people at that show claiming they've got AI. 
really what they've probably got is some type of smart predictive engine that might do some clever things to maybe there's an element of learning, but that's not AI. Mm -hmm. For something to be truly AI, it's got to do four things. All four things. It can't do one or the other or three of them. It's got to understand. It's got to reason. It's got to learn. And then it's going to be able to interact. So you could package that as saying, well, it needs to learn and build itself. What do you mean by interact? It's got to be able to understand. So interact with an audience. So when it's going to learn, so whatever the, it takes a huge amount of training. So the conversation we should like preface this with, I guess, is the level of confidence because there's a huge amount of training and people to get an AI to work properly. But once it's able to do that, then an AI could completely go and interact with audiences on its own without human involvement whatsoever. That also throws up ethical and, and implications sure. around privacy and data and distribution and fake clicks and fake audiences and all that kind of stuff. But what we're seeing at the moment is that AIs from some of the other biggest tech companies in the world as well, by the way, they're claiming that they've got an AI when really all they have is a very smart predictive engine. So I say this with a lot of love and a little bit of arrogance. Um, at the moment, we're the only company in the world that has a production-ready AI that you're able to build on as a platform. And I include Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple and Netflix and all these guys within that. Um, whether or not that plays out to be true in the future, we will see. We have a window of opportunity when there's exciting things going on. But that's the challenge. And I think that's the mindset for people looking at AI is to understand what actually is AI, but more importantly, what is it not? All right. So I had one small qualification and another question, which is that the, the notion that marketers, going back to your two different surveys you cited, the notion that marketers are using AI may be understated, but at some level, AI is being used in other areas of the company, like in customer service, and customer service typically does not report into marketing. It typically, in most companies, report into the operations side, maybe out in the warehouse, and, and marketing, for many companies, doesn't have an overview in it, and chatbots and all the uses of AI there, for example, and maybe AI is being used in the finance department differently, and yet marketing doesn't aware. But um, coming on to, to uh, let's say, working with Watson, but you know, for those who, who think they have AI... Um, can I just, can go, I, yeah, go for it. Let me just pick up on that, by the way, because that's a really good point as well. 85% of digital transformation projects fail. Only 15% succeed. That's research last year from uh, PwC. Only 15% of transformation projects succeed. That's only 2% higher than the odds of gambling in a casino, right? Let's look at the odds of chatbots. What do Facebook say about chatbots? People that have been building, you know, bots. 70% of those have failed. Why have they failed? Very few people look into the reasons why these things fail, and it's for exactly the point that you made. Because people are operating in their own little silos, and maybe the marketers are getting seduced by the shiny thing like they did with AR or VR or, you know, whatever trends have gone on in the past without looking at it as an integrated, fully across the business transformation with all the stakeholders from the different businesses involved. Vodafone have got a gorgeous saying um, because what they found years ago was that people were operating in the silos. Things fell down. Projects didn't play out in the way that they thought. They thought, you know what, instead of focusing so much on ROI, let's join everyone together and focus on the most important commodity that we have, which is time, giving people more time to do more cool stuff, have more fun, and do the things that they were supposed to do. How did they do that? 
they built something called a conversation strategy. And by reframing the position of what Vodafone was trying to do, they just took stakeholders from every department and they met together regularly and they didn't come together to build a social media strategy or a customer service strategy or, you know, data and analytics. It was a conversation strategy. And by just reframing that language, everybody took ownership of it. And no longer did you have the customer service guys saying, oh, that's the marketing guys. They're responsible for that. And the marketing guys were like, yeah, well, forget about customer service and NPS and churn. You know, that's the customer service guys. The conversation strategy brought everyone together. Now, the key was each person having their own um, shared vision and a metric that they could all, you know, show the success that they were having. And they all came together with this money ball metric that tied everything together. But that idea I thought was great. And 10 years on, I'm still not seeing brands have fully integrated conversation strategies, and that's why 85% of projects fail. All right, so I think we need to dig in on this one. So that's brilliant, Jeremy. Conversation strategy for Vodafone, the way I read that, interpret that, not knowing the story, is that they have gone to their roots Mm -hmm. because actually that's what they do. Mm -hmm. They enable conversation. That is their métier. So if I were a fashion brand, uh, is, is the conversation strategy the, 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 the title of my, of my approach? Because at the end of the day, what I would I think, and why 85% fail, not only because they're not integrated, because they actually don't have an appropriate strategy. Because digital is just an extension of your overall strategy. And if the strategy overall isn't well-defined and properly shared and owned by everybody, then who cares about your digital transformation? Mm. I mean, who cares? Everyone cares because they got to go to work, but they fail because they're not aligned and they don't understand the overall strategy. What do you think? Let me, that's, this is gorgeous. I love this. Um, Let's talk about people being aligned around a strategy and a vision, first of all, because everyone's got an ego. Everyone's got their own agenda. They've all got their own personal mission. And sometimes they're aligned, but a lot of times in business, they're not. Now, you may have your professional agenda, which it looks like this is my job, and everyone thinks that we should be working with each other for these reasons. Um, But there's often an undercurrent of something. Now, one of the best people that I heard speak about this in a language that made sense to me as a cyclist was Dave Brailsford. Now, He's in the news for all sorts of interesting reasons at the moment. That's a whole conversation that we'll leave um, for another point. But he's run the most successful cycling team of all time. Um, let's not get into where that success came from. I believe that anyway, you know him. Now, the issue is that you've got lots of egos on that team. You've got, you know, you had Wiggins and Froome and you've got some of the best elite athletes at the absolute top of their game but they've all got egos and they don't particularly like each other and they've all got their own separate sets of agendas just like in business people have different agendas they've got different measures of success everyone has a different view of how to get there now to achieve that success and Dave Brailsford was was pulled at this conference on this idea of yeah but we need to get people working together we need to get unity and we've got to have the team harmonious and he's like no you don't that's bullshit And it was like this whole, there's no me and team, there's no I, you know, all of that. He's like, it makes no difference whatsoever if you've got everybody with a completely different agenda, with totally different objectives, with the biggest egos in the world, and nobody likes each other. Because providing that you're all aligned around the same vision, which for them was winning the tour, 
then it doesn't matter. As long as you're aligned around that vision, I don't want anyone to get because your ego is the thing that makes you great. Now in business, how do you make that work? as an executive, because you've got to massage those egos and the higher up you go, sometimes the, the bigger those egos are. So let's flip that analogy from the, the Tour de France to strategy. What's your strategy? What's your vision going forward? It could be, as Simon Sinek talks about, infinite games and, and finite games. You've got a long-term play, which is just survival to keep playing. The finite game is to win and to hit a certain target, campaign, money, whatever, IPO or something. The challenge is that people approach that strategy as if there's a one-size-fits-all strategy. So another thing for the show notes that people have to go and read, it's one of the best articles that I read over the last few years. I think it's from 2015, I think it was, September, Harvard Business Review. It's called Your Strategy Needs a Strategy by Richard Rummelt that wrote this incredible book, Strategy on Strategy. And he said, actually, 80% of businesses have a classic strategy, which is annual reports, AGMs, vision at the beginning of the year, quarterly business reviews, happy days, we come back and see it next year and hopefully it's working. But what is true, and it changes radically as you go to different industries, there's actually four completely different types of strategies because some industries are predictable and you can change them, but other industries are predictable and you can't change them. And then you have the unpredictable industries that you can change and the unpredictable industries that you can't change. So to say that a brand like GSK a pharma company that's got to spend 20 years investing in a drug and the research and the trials should have the same strategy as Uber or Airbnb. Just doesn't work. So the challenge is getting people lined around the right strategy. That's the biggest challenge. And also, by the way, within the company, there may be different strategies as well within different departments. And I think you could probably speak to that more than I could. You see at an exec level, people just kind of whitewash this classic strategy and then wonder why it failed because, you know, something was disrupted and two quarters down the line, the thing was turned upside down. And now you've got the Maplins and the Toys R Us and everybody falling over. And everyone's like, how did that happen? Because you had the wrong strategy and you didn't align all those egos around the same mission. Yeah. It is quite a job for a, um, a CEO. And, and part of me, one of the area I wanted just to drop in on, because that's sort of what you do is storytelling. To what extent would you say that the CEO's job is to tell good stories? Isn't everybody's job to tell a good story? You know, this is the, the spokesperson for a company. Um, I guess, like, you have different strategies. You have completely different leaders. And I came from Salesforce, and we had a particular type of leader. Mark Benioff is a very public, very opinionated Lots of tweets, quite provocative and very outspoken as a CEO. Sounds like another CEO president, I know. <laughs> Although... I oh, don't want to make any reference to him. more, um, you know... But better grounded and better... better ethical anyway. and philanthropic and loving of people. <laughs> um, and maybe, you know, still egos come into play, but actually doing more good. Yeah. But then, you know, Ginny Rometty is the CEO, president, chairwoman of, um, of IBM. Completely different type of leader. Completely different type. Salesforce spends a ton of money on brand, has one of the biggest tech conferences in the world. IBM um, spends some money on brand, but we have a different vision for how we spend that money on brand. But what we do do is we spend $6 billion a year on research. We have these 3,000 research scientists that are inventing all these patents and the technologies that sit behind a lot of things that you wouldn't even be aware of that IBM is actually powering. But both of those CEOs are storytellers. And if you see them both at Davos, they're both telling beautiful stories, albeit 
they're completely different kinds mm -hmm. of storytellers and they appeal to a completely different set. And one of the most interesting things that happened when I came to IBM, people were talking about, well, you're the evangelist now. You've got to tell more emotional stories. And what people were asking me to do without realizing in some cases was, can you tell a Salesforce type story while you're at IBM? And well, yes, I could, but that's not true to the brand right. and the DNA of our company mm -hmm. because we're a completely different kind of business. We're a business that's 107 years old, that's been through a lot of transformations, one that's, you know, cloud and cognitive built upon research. You have another business over here that did the cloud and subscription model, but it's only 18 years old and it's set up in a completely different way to achieve totally different things. But should those CEOs be storytellers? 100% they should be. And every single person that reports into them in the entire company should be a better storyteller as well. I love that idea. I'm going to one last quick question, Jeremy. AI has multiple uses, Watson, and especially, you know, we had more time to talk about your, your kids and, and the way uh, AI helped you with that, which is beautiful. If I just focus on one small area, AI can do many things. Can it tell stories? Let me point you towards a couple of things. You can go and Google and then go down whatever foxhole it is you'd like to look at. Um, the answer is yes. There is also an element of just because something can doesn't mean that it should, which I think is a whole separate topic. And, they, and what we should talk about before we finish is to what element do people and machines work together and what's that split between you know, the, um, the, the human almost organic intelligence versus artificial intelligence. But to your point about, can it tell stories? Marquesa, we created a dress with one of the best fashion designers in the world, in New York, and we built this dress that was powered by social media. And the dress, not only did we help with the trends and the shape of that dress based upon the preferences of their audience and what was going on that year, but also the lights that were woven into the dress were powered by the social sentiment. So you can look at Marquesa. Have a look at Alex DeKid. Alex DeKid's a gorgeous music producer, did all of Rihanna's hits, Imagine Dragons. We looked back over the last 25 years of the most successful songs. We looked back at the last five years of news articles and looked at how Alex DeKid's audience responded emotionally on social media with certain topics and then surfaced stories to him that he might want to talk about in a song. So ultimately we created a fantastic dashboard for him that helped him tell a better story. Now did Watson tell that story? Well, in one way, yes, because we surfaced all the things that he should talk about. But Alex DeKid had a really nice way of describing it. He said, all Watson did was create the clothes line, the framework mm -hmm. for me to hang my stories off. And the only other one that I would point you towards, which we've got a, a, a common love of, we spent time at Wimbledon last year and we looked sure. in the bunker, we went down to the data center. 2017 was the first year that an AI 100% did the highlights for Wimbledon. And Watson watched the games, took the historical data back to 1877, 53 million points back to 1990 to IBM's partnership with Wimbledon, the crowd noise, the excitement levels, watched the game and how it played out. And Watson created entirely on his own the template for those highlight packages that summed up each game now is that storytelling absolutely it was fantastic storytelling you see the highlights tells a beautiful story of that game if i'm wimbledon should i be worried about automation and storytelling and the people that used to do that why would wimbledon want to do that because that element of formulaic storytelling which is actually quite dull 
sapped all the energy and the time and the resources of Wimbledon's team. Mm -hmm. What did they really want to do? They wanted to be more creative and they wanted to tell better stories that were more spontaneous of what happened in the championships because 70 million Wimbledon fans, but most of them are not tennis fans. They're not there all year. They're only there for the weeks of the championships and qualifying. So Wimbledon needs to build very emotional stories in a very short amount of time. What Watson helped them to do by telling the stories of the matches was free up their creative teams to build those spontaneous, beautifully creative stories of something that happened in the crowd or somebody sung or some event happened because now they've got the resource to do that because the AI did the other formulaic stuff. And I think as we see AI play out, that's where the gorgeous opportunities are going to come from, where AI works like magic, not just to make more money, but to give you more time to do the stuff that you would rather be doing that's more enjoyable. And it's the same Henry Ford, Wedgwood, you know, the computers of the 1960s. Every single time there's been an evolution like this when technology came in to disrupt jobs, people were scared and then they were really nervous until they got to the point of, do you know what? I've now got a better job that's more enjoyable, that's more creative, that's probably better paid, doing things that I didn't expect a few years ago and now I'm even happier. And then the disruption starts all over again. It does seem crystal clear for me, Jeremy, not just for Wimbledon, and I do, I had a lovely experience there, but for, for media in general, get, get the boring, repetitive tasks out and, and let the people explore their intuition, their creativity, which is what the human being. Let's just finish then on, on this last point that you raised, which is the, the mix between human and, and artificial intelligence. How does one measure that because there is let's say within the the corporate world a desire for more efficiency and lower costs and that means getting rid of those bloody human beings there's a gorgeous poster on the campus at facebook in menlo park says people over pixels came out of their analog research laboratory um google analog research laboratory and just do a google image search because it's just gorgeous facebook propaganda which ultimately all comes down to people over pixels and it's this this marriage between humanity and technology or, you know, liberal arts and technology as Jobs used to talk about. It's the biggest thing that gets thrown at me by executives and brands looking to invest in this and trying to figure out whether it's the split of the budget or the split of the people and how much to invest in it. So to close this out from where we started from, we have shiny things that people get seduced by that they want to invest in that's going to change the world. And they get they see Watson and the promise of Watson and the scale of what it can do, you know, hundreds of millions of things a day, 10 million records a second, manage your customer journeys, all that kind of stuff. It's easy to get seduced by that. The brands that fail are the ones that throw all of their money at the technology and a very small amount of money. In many cases, it might be 10% of the money goes to people, agencies, partners, culture, mindset, alignment across different business units, executives, because 90% was spent on the technology. The brands that I see that win have the opposite strategy. They spend 70 to 80% of their time and their money investing in people, not so much on technology. So this, without being very crude, say you had a million pounds, I would, if I was in that position, I would put 200,000 into technology and 800,000 into people to make that technology work properly because that's a sustainable long-term vision. Gartner backs this up. All the analyst companies back it up. They say for every dollar you spend in tech, you put $7 into people for execution and implementation. 
people haven't figured out yet that that is a problem. And the key thing with AI is out of the box, an AI, any AI, is stupid. It's as bad as it's ever going to be. The worst it's ever going to be is on day one. Why? Because it's got to be trained. It needs to learn. So the future rock star jobs are going to be the AI trainers. It's an industry that hasn't even exploded yet. $100 million a year industry. Within a couple of years, it's going to be a $5 billion a year industry. Training that AI with the nuances and, and taking out the bias, humor, sarcasm, cultural references, local differences, people need to do that. People need to train those AIs. So that's why I never talk about artificial intelligence when I refer to our own technology. I don't even call it augmented intelligence like some people do at IBM, augmenting human behavior. I like to think of it, this is just an IA Let's, let's start calling AI what it really is when it works properly. It's an IA. It's an intelligent assistant that just helps you do your job better. Beautiful, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear for IA. Jeremy, how can anyone follow you? What's the best way to track you down? Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very, very much. You're more than welcome. If you would like to, which, of course, I would love to connect. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm Jeremy Waits on Twitter. And next month, I'm launching a podcast called 10 Words. So you'll be able to find me on iTunes. Beautiful. Look forward to that, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on the show and have a great day. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mentioned in your lack of
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.